Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. I'm Greg. I am Pac. And I'm Milo. And we have another great episode for you today with our brand new hosting lineup. Uh, And in this episode, we'll be discussing the research around very high volume training. So not just the effects of training volume on muscle growth, but whether there might be efficacy to going 20, 30, maybe even 40 sets per week, looking at what the research has to say about that. Um, and, you know, we'll we'll uh, do kind of a, a looser intro in a little bit. Um, but just to start this episode, I want to give a little bit of context for why this is an important and uh, surprisingly contentious topic these days. So uh, the background context here is that there are, broadly speaking, two camps when it comes to training for muscle growth. Uh, On one hand, there are people who generally promote uh, training volume as the most important variable for muscle growth, pointing out that research does generally support the idea that higher training volumes tend to cause more muscle growth, uh, at least to a point. On the other hand, uh, there are people in what used to be called the the high intensity training camp um you know people have have rebranded some of those ideas now but uh you know folks who generally promote lower training volumes but training very close to failure or past failure um that is broadly speaking the other camp uh and and those folks generally are of the perspective that muscle growth largely comes from training Uh, very close to failure or maybe even past failure per set, uh, and that in order to even be able to tolerate high training volumes, um, that's just evidence that you're not putting enough effort into each set and that you're doing a bunch of so-called junk volume. So uh, very close to failure, very hard sets, but um, considerably lower training volumes. That's that's what folks in the other camp uh, broadly tend to promote. And in reality, there are very few people who are radically in favor of one position at the exclusion of the other, just very, very high volume and intensity per set is completely irrelevant or, um, you know, very, very high intensity, close to failure, past failure, but volume is completely irrelevant. There are very few people who are truly on one extreme or the other. Um, But to the extent that people argue over which exercise prescription variable is most important for muscle growth, most people do either find themselves being more sympathetic to the volume position or the uh, intensity slash proximity to failure uh, position. And just a little note, um, when we use intensity in this episode, uh, just because the the idea of high intensity training, meaning low volume training close to failure like just because that is so relevant to this discussion um a lot of times when the term intensity is used when discussing exercise research that's talking about um like percent of one rm like how heavy someone is training but in this discussion when we use the term intensity or at least when i use the term intensity it will mostly be referring to difficulty per set, mostly as it relates to proximity to failure. Um, so just just making that little note there. Uh, but anyway, so this the the topic of conversation for today's podcast, the efficacy of really high volume training, um, 
is situated directly in the middle of an argument that's been ongoing for at least the past 50 to 60 years. And the stakes surrounding this topic are quite high because, at least for the people who like to nerd out about this stuff, um, because people in the high-intensity training camp typically fall back on three arguments against the efficacy of high-volume training for maximizing muscle growth. The first argument is generally that uh, in order to actually train with really high volumes in a single session, your per set intensity will have to be low. So you'll have to train really far from failure. Um, so in effect, you'll just be doing a lot of so-called junk volume. The sets aren't hard enough to actually do anything for you in order to tolerate these really high training volumes. So most of the volume you do uh, complete will be ineffective. Or uh, if you train with really high volumes but close to failure every set, your performance will decline so much that by the end of a high volume session, uh, your, your performance will be so low that it winds up being so-called junk volume anyways. Um, so that's kind of argument one to tolerate high training volumes. Just most, most of it will be ineffective, so-called junk volume. Number two is... Uh, if you do train with high volumes and you do train with sufficient intensity per set, there's no way you'll even be able to recover from your training sessions, um, leading to stagnation at best or overtraining and injury at worst. And uh, the third argument you'll often hear is that even if you were able to handle the training sessions and recover from them, there's only but so much per session volume you can actually adapt to. So in effect, it just loops back to the idea of junk volume again. Either uh, the, the volume you're doing will have to be with really easy sets or you'll be so fatigued that it won't be effective. Or if you can actually do it and performance stays adequate and you can recover from it, uh, oh, guess what? It's still junk volume because you've, you've exceeded the cap of volume per session that you can actually adapt to. Um, so those are the three arguments that uh, people in the high-intensity camp will often trot out to argue against the efficacy of high-volume training. So uh, if research shows that people can actually do very high-volume training at fairly high intensities, like pretty close to failure, training hard, uh, and recover from it, and grow more than they would have with lower training volumes, that would be a very serious threat to... to uh, influencers and coaches that have built audiences and businesses on the basis of promoting high-intensity training for the purpose of maximizing muscle growth. So anytime this topic comes up, it is bound to be contentious because a lot of people have a lot riding on the position that muscle growth is maximized at relatively low levels of training volume, thus allowing intensity to reign supreme. So in this episode, we want to dig into the research on high-volume training, go over its strengths and weaknesses, and address some of the objections people have raised to the findings in the area uh, so that you folks will know uh, about high-volume training and, you know, some of the pros and cons and decide whether you might want to try it out for yourself. Uh, but before we do that, this is, an this is the first episode with this new hosting lineup. Uh, if you listen to the most recent episode of the podcast, you knew to expect this. And if you listen to episodes 124 and 125, Pack and Milo were the guests uh, on those two episodes. But for, but for people who are tuning in for the first time, or people who are tuning in for the first time in a while, uh, 
Pack and Milo, I'll, I'll shut up now. Uh, could you guys introduce yourself and also um, share a little bit about your own personal position and any biases you might have related to training volume before you guys dove into this body of literature? Sure. My name is Pack. <laughs> my full name is Patrick Center Likes Karakakis, but my name aside, I am a researcher slash coach slash lifter and gym enthusiast. And I think that, that that covers a very brief introduction of, of who I am. I personally like to lift for the sake of lifting. I like to lift heavy objects, but also to lift for hypertrophy. And as far as personal biases go, I did my PhD specifically on the minimum effective training dose for strength. So what's the least one needs to do in order to get meaningfully stronger. So if there is a bias, it is pro low volume training and how great it, uh, how great it is for adaptations. However, personally, as a lifter, I'm coming into this not really biased towards one side or the other, but rather from a perspective where I value low volume training as it can get you a bunch of gains, both for strength uh, and hypertrophy. But at the same time, I am pro higher volumes for individuals who want to do everything in their capacity to absolutely maximize muscle growth. And that, that context, I think, is important in this discussion. So not really a very strong bias, but... Personally, as a lifter, I am somebody who lifts with relatively moderate training volumes, around 5 to 12 sets per muscle group per week, and very low volumes for my lower body. So we're talking 1 to 3 sets per uh, per week for hamstrings and quads in the form of some squatting and some deadlifting. I'll pass on to good friend, Dr. Milo Wolf. Yeah, thank you, Pac. Um, first off, my name is Milo Milo Wolf is my full name, but uh, you can just call me Milo. My background is not to just copy Packer, but as a researcher, lifter, and I have also competed in both bodybuilding and powerlifting. So I've got some experience, both more so in the trenches, as in the lifting trenches, but also in the academia trenches, all types of trenches. Um, just not the real ones, not the ones that matter. Um, but I would say my bias going into this discussion, broadly speaking, is someone who has mostly lifted as a means to maximize progress. Like, that's always just appealed to me. I'm more of a maximalist than a minimalist. I've never gone more than like a few weeks where I tried to kind of like take things easy, like sense, or even just settle for less than maximum progress. Um, in fact, there was a time in my career, training career, again, the only career that matters, uh, where I trained 13 or 14 times a week. So it was certainly more training than most people would ever do. I've done as many as like 200 to 250 sets a week of training, pretty close to failure. Um, and I've also done my fair share of training to failure consistently, if only as part of like research studies, right? So I would say my bias, if anything, you could argue is pro higher volumes, but equally, that is coming from the perspective of, look, if you want to maximize progress, you may need to do things that aren't perfectly time efficient, for example. And I think that's where the research is handy in helping us determine, all right, how much more growth can we actually see with this approach? And is it worth that time trade-off 
for the average person that you know we might be coaching and that they have two or three hours a week to train versus me being willing, for example, to train for five or 10 hours a week. So that's kind of my position going into this whole volume discussion. I got you. Uh, for, for myself, um, my, my bias is that I would like low volume training to be optimal, uh, both because I'm, I'm pretty busy these days. And also, uh, from a marketing perspective, the, the intersection of being able to sell things and also being able to sleep at night by not having to lie to people. Uh, I wish I truly believed that low volume training was the best because being able to tell people like, hey, you only only got to work out for like two total hours per week and you can maximize your gains. Uh, that's that's a strong sales pitch. And also uh, it's going to lead to less confusion than the position of, hey, to, to actually completely maximize your gains. Maybe you're going to be spending a shitload of time in the gym, but actually, if you're not doing this professionally, you can you can spend half as much time in the gym and get 80% of the gains. And guess what? It's fine to not actually like maximize and optimize every little thing, and that's okay. Um, people, people don't like that. They tend to misunderstand it, and uh, that annoys me. So... My my personal bias is uh, I I would love for <laughs> for low training volumes um, to to be optimal. It would make my life much easier. Um, but my other bias is like the the first time I encountered the argument that uh, that that high training volumes were just impossible to recover from, impossible to tolerate. Uh, all of that stuff like in and this this was pre any currently going hot discussion in the fitness industry this was maybe 2004 um like even before the first krieger meta analysis on the topic no this was maybe 2005 2006 whatever um but yeah like that that was when uh, high intensity training and like elliot darden were like very very popular and folks were like, hey, look, you know, you can only do one or two sets per muscle group. And then if you if you want to stand any chance to recover, you're going to need to take at least a week off before you train that muscle again. Uh, and if you're if you're advanced, you might even need to take up to two weeks off uh, to be able to recover from that um, and make any progress. And I remember just the first time I encountered that my thought was, well, that's obviously wrong and stupid. And how do people not see that? Because, uh, I mean, I, I grew up in the sticks in the, in the middle of nowhere and a bunch of people in my family were farmers and, you know, pretty heavy manual labor every day, especially when it's hay baling season, you know, your hay bales are fucking heavy and you're picking them up and moving them all day. And then you do it the next day. And, you know, I, I don't want to get too into like folksy, like oh, farm strength versus gym strength or like any of that stuff. But they were just objectively speaking, very strong, very muscular people. So and just from from hashtag team no days off, uh, just doing hard physical stuff every day. So I was like, nah, the, the whole the whole thing about you couldn't possibly recover from high volume training and and you might even need up to two weeks to recover from low volume training. My just personal history and biases informed me to uh, immediately ignore that the first time I saw it just because 
it was obviously wrong. Um, but yeah, those those are kind of my biases coming into this discussion. Yeah. So hearing you wish that low volume was the best approach, I can empathize with that. Equally, you know when you watch training montages for Rocky or any show or any anime or whatever, and they're just training really hard, and by the end of it, they reap the rewards, and it's mm-hmm. commensurate to how, how hard they worked and how much they worked. That's got its own appeal. So I think part of me is when I saw some of the higher volume research and some of it is more in favor of uh, higher volumes being better for hypertrophy. Some of it isn't. But on occasion, when I was more of the impression that higher volumes were better for hypertrophy, part of me was like, oh, nice. You really just mm-hmm. need to, you know, grind and you'll get more jacked. And that has its own appeal to me. So I get your perspective. Um, and I think different people can just be attracted to different training styles, if only as a result of their personality and preferences. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, okay. Uh, so with with that uh, brief intro out of the way, um, let's, uh, let's take a brief moment for plugs, and then we will dive into to the meat of this episode. Uh, so if you enjoy the show uh, and, you know, if you listen to this episode and you're like, damn, I really enjoy this this new hosting lineup uh, and you haven't uh, reviewed the show yet anywhere, please take a moment to like, rate, subscribe, uh, tell your friends about it, etc. It really helps us out. Just head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen and give us five stars, uh, please. And thank you. Uh, if you are interested in hiring a coach to help you with your training and or nutrition, Stronger by Science has an excellent team of coaches that can help you out. Uh, you can learn more at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. Um, quite a few people listening to this episode are probably coached by either Milo or Pac right now, um, and, and they could verify that these two gentlemen uh, and all of our other coaches do excellent work. Um, If you want to purchase supplements from a reliable source for a good price and support the podcast at the same time, uh, check out BulkSupplements.com and use code SBSPOD at checkout for a 5% discount. If you want to stay in touch with all things going on in Stronger by Science land, uh, join our Facebook group and or subreddit. That's uh, Stronger by Science community on Facebook or reddit.com slash r slash stronger by science. Um, that's how you, how, you, how you can know what we have going on. And, uh, you know, for instance, with, with this episode, we solicited questions. We solicited your questions about high-volume training. Uh, we posted the threads to get those questions in the Facebook group and subreddit. So uh, if you're not in there, you, you wouldn't have had a chance to... Uh, post your question and maybe have it answered on the show. So yeah, uh, join the Facebook group and subreddit. They are great. Um, Subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, We send you high quality, informative content straight to your inbox. We're not uh, constantly spamming you with a bunch of ads, which is what many newsletters turn into. That's not us. Um, it's, It's just good stuff. If you like the podcast, you'll probably like the newsletter. You can learn more about that at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. Uh, And finally, if you do have questions that you would like us to answer on the podcast, uh, maybe at the end of a regular episode, maybe on a dedicated Q&A episode, um, 
you can record a voice memo uh, asking that question and email it to podcast at strongerbyscience.com. In this episode, we're, we're going to mostly be talking about the research around high volume training. Um, but I thought it might be useful to start with a little bit of history just to just to help get people's uh, feet wet on this topic. Um, is that is that cool with you guys? Definitely. Of course. Sounds cool, cool. Uh, and, and for the listener, um, I don't know if it feels like I'm talking too much at the top of this episode to you. It feels to me like I'm talking too much at the top of this episode, but I will just say once the uh, once I've said my piece about kind of the the history and context around this topic, um, I will be shutting up for a while, and and Milo and Pack are going to take it away on the the research roundup here. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the history here just to illustrate um, like where some of these ideas come from and quite frankly how some of the goalposts have shifted over time um, in the kind of lower volume training camp. Uh, because these days when people argue against high volume training and say, ah, like low volumes, high intensity, like that's not just fine, but optimal for muscle growth. Um, those same folks 20 years ago, the level of training volume that they were pushing for was much lower than the level of training volume they push for today. So there has there has been just a historical shift towards people being even like low volume people being more and more open minded to higher training volumes as more and more research has come out around this topic. Um, and so, yeah, I, I thought that for the context of today's episode, it would be helpful to start with with a little bit of that historical context. So uh, I'm sure you could find like ancient texts where maybe like two two uh, like Greek coaches for the original Olympics are arguing about high versus low volume training. Like I'm I'm sure that was a thing, but for the modern discussion, um, I think, I think a lot of that starts in the 1970s, um, late 60s, early 70s, when bodybuilding was going fully mainstream. I'm sure people who were actually in the sports world or the the physical culture space were discussing these things before then, but. You know, in terms of people writ large caring about this stuff, having these conversations, that was broadly kicked off by just lifting culture and bodybuilding going mainstream and mass media becoming more of a thing so that people promoting high and low training volumes could get their ideas out to more to more folks. Um, so, yeah, the, the bodybuilders from this era of like late 60s into early 80s. Um, were legendary, but uh, two of the most influential coaches and early influencers in the history of, uh, like the the kind of mid-century history of physical culture, um, were also two absolute legends of that era. Those people being Vince Gironda and Arthur Jones. 
Uh, and you'll hear one of those two names associated with almost every famous bodybuilder of that era. Uh, the nature of those relationships isn't always clear, so uh, you'll you'll see people say either Vince Gironda or Arthur Jones coached a lot of these people that I'm about to list, and maybe they did. Maybe maybe some of those folks just trained at gyms they owned. Maybe they just got advice about a couple little things. Maybe it was a business arrangement. Um, you know, to help sell Nautilus machines for some folks. Like the the nature of these relationships isn't always clear, but but some of the names you'll hear attached to those folks is uh, uh, Vince Gironda touched the careers of Larry Scott, Frank Zane, Lou Ferrigno, and most famously Arnold Schwarzenegger. And for Arthur Jones, you'll you'll hear his name associated with Sergio Oliva, Casey Viator. Uh, uh, of the so-called Colorado experiment fame, Mike Mincer and uh, later Dorian Yates. Um, so yeah, the, these Vince Gironda and Arthur Jones are legends for a reason. Um, you know, you don't you don't hear your name come up uh, in discussions about that many legendary bodybuilders, and you know, th- there's there's a reason for it that they that they're ideas were so influential at the time and that they are still remembered to this day. So Vince Gironda popularized a lot of training methods, but the 8x8 method is probably the thing that he's most remembered for now, at least at least on the training side of things. He also popularized a lot of uh, kind of weird dietary ideas. Um, but yeah, the 8x8 method is... I think just by the sound of it, you can tell that's that's a pretty high volume approach to training. Uh, essentially, it was you take one exercise per muscle group, do eight sets of eight reps with it, starting with around 70% of your max, and you go up and wait once you can do all eight sets. Um, the original 8x8 method was an upper-lower split Monday through Friday, with uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday being upper body days and Tuesday, Thursday being lower body days. Um, And it involved training with anywhere from 16 to 72 sets per muscle group per week. So like for for calves, you know, it's just you're going to do one calf exercise for eight sets twice a week, 16 sets. But like with triceps, for instance, it was... um, like two pressing movements and a direct triceps exercise. So uh, 24 sets per session and three upper body sessions per week. So, you know, very, very, and similar for for biceps as well. Um, so yeah, very, very high volume approach to training for buys and tries. And, you know, some of those names I mentioned, Larry Scott, Lou Ferrigno, Arnold, um, they had pretty pretty decent arm development, I would say. Uh, so yeah, Vince Gironda generally was a proponent of pretty high-volume training. Arthur Jones, on the other hand, is kind of the godfather of high-intensity training. Um, and there are a lot of formulations of high-intensity training that you'll see floating around. There, there were folks who came who were concurrent with Arthur Jones and came after Arthur Jones that uh, also promoted high intensity training and, and their versions may have had like different flavors. Um, so there, there's a lot of things that fall under the high intensity umbrella, but some of the commonalities of them are that they tend to focus, like they tend to promote slow eccentrics, um, and almost exclusively promote training either to failure or past failure. 
And the classic uh, high-intensity training setup is just one set to failure per muscle group per week. Um, some versions had higher volume. Some were even uh, like lower volume than that. Uh, but all versions were considerably lower volume than Vince Gironda's methods. And um, like, like I mentioned previously, some high-intensity training advocates said that like you know one set per muscle group per week that might even be too much like once you get advanced that might just be one set per muscle group every 10 days or every two weeks like we're, we're talking some very very low volume approaches to training uh, coming out of the high intensity school uh so yeah that that all kind of kicked off in in debates around high volume versus high intensity uh, at least in the modern context, got started there in the 70s. And for the next 30 years or so, those were the two basic camps. Um, incidentally, at the at the time, at least, high volume was by and large seen as like the quote-unquote bro position, and uh, high intensity training was seen as the kind of nerdy, science-y position. Uh, and in fact, you'll still sometimes see people re refer to Mike Mincer as the quote, first scientific bodybuilder. Uh, and a lot of that perception was just based on marketing and branding. So there wasn't actually like real research, like what we would consider to be research today on much, if any of this stuff. But um, Arthur Jones was the the founder of Nautilus, like the exercise equipment company. And so he had he had pretty deep pockets and he wanted to have new fun and exciting ways to to promote his training methods and sell his equipment um so he would he would run these little i mean just like case studies that he would call studies or experiments um and then you know promote them as if they were uh generalizable scientific findings that validated the efficacy of his training methods or um or exercise equipment more often than not, the exercise equipment. That's that's what he made his money on. Um, but yeah, so it, it gave it the veneer of scientific legitimacy, probably the most famous. And, and the thing that still high-intensity training advocates will bring up is the Colorado experiment where uh, bodybuilder Casey Viator, who I, I forget the actual context. Maybe it had been an illness. Maybe it was a car accident. One of the two. But whatever, he he had uh, been not training for a while and he had lost a lot of muscle and he uh, went and trained with Arthur Jones and did low volume, high intensity training on Nautilus equipment, uh, probably got back on cycle, but who knows, you know, not uh, not going to say that for sure, but it seems quite likely um, and regained like. 60 pounds of muscle over the period of like 12 weeks or something. But a lot of that context was missing at the time. You know, Arthur Jones didn't go in his magazine and say, hey, I, I took this guy who had lost a ton of muscle and helped him regain it. He said, man, this guy who, you know, even after he had lost muscle, Casey Viator was still quite jacked. It's like I took this guy who was already jacked and put 60 pounds of muscle on him with high in, with low volume, high intensity training on Nautilus equipment uh, therefore my stuff rocks and you should, you should buy it. Um, like that was, that was very influential and like, it's still, it still comes up all the time today. Um, 
so yeah, the, at, at the time, low volume, high intensity training was seen as kind of the, the nerdy kind of like sciencey way to train uh, due to those little experiments that Arthur Jones would do and publicize. So uh, the first like actual real peer reviewed study on the topic of um, the effects of different training volumes on muscle growth uh, I mean, you guys can see in the outline, but before I put it in the outline, wh when would you guys have guessed that the first study on different training volumes was published? Late 80s, early 90s, very like not not very early. I would have like said earlier than that, but not intentionally. So I imagine like some studies on lifting must have been done. Some of them mm -hmm. might have not controlled for all variables and therefore two groups might have ended up doing different number of sets. But yeah, as far as actually directly looking at it, same as pack, like early 80s, maybe. Mm. I, I, I would have expected personally there to be like one study from the 50s. Like the, the way a lot of this stuff tended to work, like it's 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 wild when you look back through the history of uh, like training studies, because like a pattern you'll see pretty frequently is there will be like one study published um, in the 50s or 60s. And then that is just the body of literature on that topic for 40 years. Yep. And apparently just no one. I, I think I think it was like, hey, it, like before people knew about uh, things sometimes not replicating and, you know that it's good to replicate findings. Scientific communication was often kind of like, we do have a study on this. It had strong results. Therefore, this is generalizably true. So you would see like one paper from like 1962. And then for the next 30 years until sometime in the 90s, people were like, we don't need to research this more. Like we, we know it already. Like they did the study. And then people are like, maybe we should do more studies. Uh, so I, I kind of expected to see that with training volume. I, I just assumed someone in the 60s or 70s would have been like, hey, are, are three sets better than one? Who knows? Um, but no, the I first. Mean, oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I mean, the fact that a case study on a potential genetic uh, freak that m may have also been using PEDs was used as the source of evidence for anything. Um, yeah. I think shows how, how poor things were. And also, if you remember when the discussion around single and multiple sets started, uh, even in the context of muscle growth, a lot of the literature that people referred to did not directly um, measure hypertrophy and it was just strength, but it was still presented as muscle growth uh, sort of volume literature. Oh yeah, and for just, sure. Just to add on to the Casey Vider story, he did in fact gain 60 pounds of muscle but from what I can see, and I checked a few websites, it seems like it was over four weeks, not 12. What? Which is absurd. That's, uh, damn, that's wild if true. for him. Indeed. Hey, we're all jealous. That's, hmm. Oh, man, I'm, uh, I, I would love for that to be replicated under controlled conditions just because... Like the 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 piece that I'm the most curious about is like over four weeks. So that's you're averaging close to two and a half pounds of muscle per day, and so I'm just wondering, just purely from just just ribosomal like translational capacity, just like how 
how you can synthesize protein at that rate. Um, that, I mean, that, would, that would be crazy. Weight gain. Like, um, he must, from the pictures at least, he must have gained a solid 40 pounds minimum. Imagine gaining yeah. 40 pounds in a month. Your diet must be Ooh. Myron, Fine. you know? He is, yeah. M- Milo is right. Like, I see here uh, an article that says the experiment lasted from May 1st to May 29th. Uh, he only trained three times per week with only Nautilus machine machines and essentially did 12 workouts and gained 45 pounds in body weight, lost seven, 17 uh, pounds of fat, and essentially gained 63 pounds of muscle. So... Uh, pretty okay, good, I'd say. 12, 12 workouts. I, I, th- I think I just like tabbed it in my, in my brain as 12 weeks just to make it seem more realistic. Damn, as that's if. crazy. Yeah, like I, yeah. I, I, I would love to see a case study like that. Just, um, you know, an IFBB pro who gets injured or something, can't train for a while, goes off cycle, loses like 80 pounds of muscle, and then just... Just get them in the lab, metabolic chamber, you know, blood samples every day, um, you know, get get some of those tracer amino acids in, into the system just to observe the most ludicrous muscle protein synthesis rates anyone has ever seen. Get, get them on that farm grade gear to, you know, really, really kick things off. Yeah, I, I would love I would just love to know more about the physiology of that. That would be that would be awesome. Um but yeah, so so kind of going back to the uh, the the history of the research on this topic, first study comparing uh, the effects of different training volumes on muscle growth, uh, at least that um, was of a quality that you could include it in a meta analysis on the topic today. Um, first study was from 1996, uh, and so that's pretty recent. That is, uh, well, I was, I, I was about, to, yeah, and and Milo were, was were unborn. You, yeah, I, I was, I was literally about to say we were all alive when the first study was published, but two two thirds of this call was alive when the first uh, the first study on this topic was published. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's recent. That's recent, um, and by 2010. There were still only eight studies in total on the effects of different training volumes on muscle growth. And uh, in that year, 2010, James Krieger performed the first ever meta-analysis on this topic, looking at, um, you know, not necessarily the kind of dose-response relationship between total weekly training volume and muscle growth, but uh, looking at the impact of single versus multiple sets per muscle group per workout on muscle growth. And uh, li- listeners might hear that and say, w- why? Like, why was the topic of interest, you know, if if you had weekly training volumes and, could, and you could look at the effects of volume on growth from that lens, why is the lens you're looking at it through just single versus multiple sets uh, per work, like in each workout? And that's because that was the topic at the time. Um, like that is what people were interested in then because of how influential, like really low volume, single set, high intensity training was uh, at the time. So, you know, the topic of discussion wasn't, 
hey, are 15 sets per week maybe better than 10? It was, is there any point in doing that second set? Like, is is just one enough in a in a given workout? And so, um, yeah, the the meta analysis was just are multiple sets better than a single set for muscle growth? And um, turns out it was. Uh, but yeah, th- that was where the conversation was at the time. And in 2010, when that meta analysis was published. There were only two studies that included at least four sets per muscle group per workout. So even the research on training volume up to that point had mostly looked at low training volumes, relatively speaking. Um, There was one paper that was included in the Krieger meta-analysis by Ostrowski and colleagues that used higher volume training. But of of the eight studies in that 2010 meta, most were, you know, testing very low training volumes versus still pretty low training volumes. Like, like that's just what the state of the literature was at the time. Uh, so since then, um, there has been a slow progression towards figuring out just how much volume is on average optimal for maximizing muscle growth. Most people reasonably believe that the relationship between volume and muscle growth has something resembling a so-called inverted U relationship where low volume doesn't cause much muscle growth, higher volumes cause more. At some point, as volumes continue to increase, there's a plateau where just adding more volume doesn't result in more muscle growth. And then even further past that point, higher volumes will lead to less muscle growth and eventually overtraining and actually muscle loss and regression. So, you know, that leads to that kind of inverted U shape where... uh, very low, not great, more volume, increases, plateau, decline. So that's that's sort of the dose, the assumed dose-response relationship between volume and muscle growth that most people have in mind. And essentially, we we know a lot about what happens on the left-hand side of that graph, um, the relationship between uh, low to moderate volumes and muscle growth, but Less is known about the farther right side of that graph. Like we're not we're not yet super confident about where the plateau uh, kicks in, where further increases in volume truly don't lead to more growth. Um, and we know even less, I would say, virtually nothing about the very right hand side of the graph, where higher training volumes actually lead to uh, less muscle growth and. We know basically nothing about the furthest right-hand side of the graph where training volumes get so high that they directly lead to regression, overtraining, uh, etc. So that's that's what the research is trying to do. Like we we're essentially just moving moving to the right along that assumed inverted U curve um, and and doing it gradually over time. So um, but yeah, thus far a lot of that is is still a mystery. Like if you've ever played uh, a game like Age of Empires, like most most of the map is still clouded by the fog of war and we're just exploring further out uh, a year at a time. So there was no research on training volume at all uh, in 1995. By 2010, there were eight studies uh, in total, just, just to kind of illustrate the progression of research on this topic. Uh, and in 2010... 
only three studies had tested more than 10 sets per week. Like that was that was as far as as training volume got in the research at the time. By 2016, there was another meta-analysis published that that I know you guys are uh, going to talk about soon. Um, and there were 15 studies included in that meta, but still only two going above 20 sets per week. So, you know, we, we knew more about the impact of training volume up to about 10 sets or so. But, you know, once you're starting to get into the 20 set range. We, we still just didn't have hardly any research about that yet uh, in 2016. By 2022, there was another meta-analysis published, um, and there were now seven studies testing volumes that exceeded 20 sets per week. So, you know, in that six-year span from 2016 to 2022, the uh, the amount of research on training volumes exceeding 20 sets per week increased by 250%. Uh, so still, seven sets isn't the biggest body of research in the world, but seven is is a lot bigger than two. So research on higher and higher training volumes is progressing and, and more is coming out each year. Um, so yeah, in, in 2010, there was just barely enough research to start determining whether multiple sets were better than a single set now, I would say there's barely enough research to start analyzing the effects of volumes exceeding 20 sets per week, which is what we want to do in this episode. Um, but I just wanted to give that context to encourage the listener to uh, interpret things tentatively as, as we talk about this research, because this body of research is by and large, still relatively new and is still relatively small. Um, we're, we're just starting to get to the point where we can start to make uh, some, some tentative conclusions about this stuff. Uh, and I also wanted to give that context to encourage people to listen with an open mind um, because a lot of things that are taken as, as given now, uh, pretty recently, like as of 2010, for a lot of people would have been considered very radical. Like at this point, I don't think many people at all would argue that a single set per week is optimal for muscle growth. And the suggestion that 10 sets, like you, you, we could see pretty consistent increases up to 10 sets per week. A lot of people would be like, 10 is crazy. Like that, that's very high volume. And now even folks who are kind of on, on the like modern uh, high intensity camp side of things, uh, they'll be like, "Hey, look, we, we, you don't need to you don't need to mess around with volumes that are twenty plus sets per week, but just nice, comfortable, low volumes like ten sets per week, like that's that's plenty." Um, so that that is how much this uh, this this kind of views on this topic have shifted over time. Where what was considered very high volume fourteen years ago is now considered like perfectly reasonable by folks who by and large promote lower training volumes today. And a lot of that has just had to do with the fact that there didn't used to be any research on this. And as we've been getting more and more, it has been, un you know, that, that fog of war is being blown away and we are seeing, hey, little higher training volumes seem to lead to more muscle growth. Okay, now let's take the next step. Let's look at the next level of training volume. Does that also lead to more muscle growth? 
okay, now let's take the next step, even higher training volumes. Does that also lead to more muscle growth? And it has just been that gradual progression. So, you know, I, the, the research is starting to take that step beyond 20 sets per week or so. And, and we're starting to learn more and more about that. So, you know, who knows in another 10 years, it, it could be people are like, hey, you don't need to mess around with 50 sets per week, but nice low training volumes like 20 sets. Yeah, that's that's totally fine. You know, it's, it's hard to say where things will be eventually, but I, I did just want to illustrate how far the the conversation has already shifted towards people being more accepting of higher training volumes. Um, and, you know, maybe it will happen again as we get more research on the topic. So I, I just wanted to say that to uh, encourage people to, to listen to this uh, with an open mind. So that is the historical context out of the way, and I will kick it over to you guys. So I just wanted to mention, I fully agree. And I think the idea that people sometimes still have a closed mind when it comes to even higher volumes potentially being beneficial when it comes to maximizing growth was actually illustrated recently with the publication of the most recent super high volume study by analysts and colleagues, where they investigated volumes as high as, on average, 37 sets per week for a single muscle, which, you know, if it took until 2010 for people to start thinking about multiple sets being good, it'll probably take a <laughs> while for most people to come to the idea, to come around to the idea that all the way to potentially 30 or 40 sets a week could be beneficial in the right circumstances. But before we go into those findings, let's take a step back and kind of review what the two most up-to-date meta-analyses on volume have broadly found before we go into individual studies that have potentially been published since these review papers and or that potentially just weren't included. So the first one is a meta-analysis by Brad Schoenfeld and colleagues from 2017. Uh, now, I think this was the second meta-analysis following on from Krieger's meta-analysis in 2010, and where Krieger's meta-analysis focused on single versus multiple sets. This one actually tried to see, okay, how do things change once we go past just single versus multiple sets and go to, say, 10 plus sets, comparing, for example, volumes of zero to five sets to five to 10 sets to over 10 sets? And do we see that each additional set, at least within the context of what's been studied so far, does result in more hypertrophy on a set per set basis? So what they did was they included studies that included coupled eccentric concentric lifting, so essentially any sort of traditional exercise that has a lifting phase and a lowering phase, studies that involved lifting at least 65% of your one or max, so lifting reasonably heavy, studies that tried to equate all other variables that might influence hypertrophy, that studies needed to last at least six weeks in duration so that you could actually see a reasonable effect, I guess. And finally, they needed to be generally healthy, non-medication-using subjects, essentially trying to exclude any variables that could otherwise confound results besides just a variable of interest, which in this case was volume. They found 15 studies that they were able to analyze. So as we mentioned, that's quite a jump up from the only eight studies back in 2010. Essentially, they performed a variety of analyses to try to get at the relationship between volume and muscle growth. They essentially performed four different kinds of analysis. 
The first one was viewing volume as a continuous variable. So essentially a variable that is a number and that you can change from say one to 20 and viewing results across studies equally. So for example, you could analyze results in terms of saying that each study has a lower volume group and a higher volume group and just seeing, okay, when we compare all the lower volume groups to all the higher volume groups, is there an effect in favor of one of the groups? Or you could say, well, let's just extract how many sets, how many sets per week each group did in each study and then analyze their hypertrophy as an extension of that. Then the second analysis they did was essentially just taking the lower and higher volume groups within each study and comparing the hypertrophy of all the lower volume groups to all the higher volume groups. And then they also performed more categorical analyses, so essentially grouping volumes into being either low, medium, or high across studies. So low volumes would be anything below five sets per week per muscle, medium volumes would be anything between five and nine sets per week per muscle, and high volumes would be anything at 10 or above sets per week per muscle. And then finally, just a more binary analysis comparing lower volumes of nine or fewer sets to above nine sets across studies. They also tried to run a meta-regression model that tried to include a variety of predictors to see, for example, if the gender of participants, the age, the muscle group being tested, so essentially whether it was an upper body muscle, a lower body muscle, or whether they were training their whole body, how long the study was, whether they were assessing hypertrophy directly, like via ultrasound, or more so on a global level, whether any of these factors really played a major role in determining the relationship between volume and hypertrophy. And essentially, only one of the models was any different from just looking at volume as a predictor of hypertrophy. And that was a model that included both the volume, so essentially how many sets that people do, and also the type of measurement. So it seemed like the type of measurement being performed within these studies did influence the sort of magnitude and shape of the relationship between volume and hypertrophy, such that there was generally a greater effect when more direct measurement tools were used. And generally, more direct measurement tools, like for example, ultrasounding the muscle of interest, are going to be preferable over more indirect measurement methods, like for example, using a DEXA that is more so looking at whole body hypertrophy or potentially a bod pod that can't really distinguish between hypertrophy with different muscle groups, for example, the ones that may have been examined within the study versus the ones that potentially they were training on their own outside of the study and thus could confound that measurement. So broadly speaking, here's what they found. First, there was a significant effect of each additional set that was performed within these studies on hypertrophy. And each set resulted in an additional hypertrophy of about 0.37%. So there was a significant effect of doing more sets for each additional set, at least within these studies, in terms of how much muscle growth they caused. When they categorized volumes into either being low, so below five sets, medium, so between five and nine sets, or 10 and more sets per week, they didn't find a significant effect of volume on hypertrophy, but they did once again broadly find that higher volumes were better for hypertrophy. So there was an effect size of about 0.3 when participants were performing fewer than five sets a week, about 0.4 when participants were performing five to nine sets per week, and about 0.5 when participants were performing 10 or more sets per week. The same, broadly speaking, was true of results when they simply categorized as being 
either lower volumes or higher volumes, and lower being fewer than nine sets and higher volumes being nine or more sets, with there not being a significant effect, but with larger effect sizes being apparent for the higher volume bracket. Essentially, for the lower volume bracket, the improvement in hypertrophy corresponded to an effect size of about 0.3, and for the higher volume bracket of nine or more sets per week, it corresponded to an effect size of about 0.45. And so when you look at the analyses performed across four different types of analyses, it is consistently the case that higher volumes seem to lead to at least a little bit more growth within what have been had been studied at the time. And so when looking at five or fewer sets to higher volumes, when looking at volume as a continuous variable, so looking at how does muscle growth change as we add each additional set, it does generally seem like higher volumes were better for growth. Importantly, one of the studies included by Radeli and colleagues was deemed influential, which is essentially just to say um, the way they viewed an influential study was, does removing the study make a finding go from significant to non-significant or meaningfully impact the effect estimate between, for example, a lower volume and a higher volume. When they removed the study by Redalian and colleagues that generally showed higher volumes being substantially better for hypertrophy, there was no longer any difference, for example, in one of the analysis, or no longer any significant difference, rather, in one of the analysis performed. But broadly speaking, the relationship between volume and hypertrophy, that more volume did seem to lead to more growth, did remain. So broadly speaking, those are the results of the second meta-analysis on hypertrophy back in 2017 by Schoenfeld and colleagues. But since then, there has been a more up-to-date meta-analysis by Basval and colleagues that Pac will now speak us through. For sure. Um, I just wanted to note first on the Schoenfeld meta, there's been, it's often presented as a, a meta that really highlights the the importance of high training volumes and it is often presented as the meta that you know is telling you that there's no there's no way uh, that you're going to make solid gains unless you train with high volumes but if you actually look at the the paper itself there's there's plenty of caution expressed by the authors uh, themselves especially when looking at the practical applications where they essentially say that you know more research is needed and based on the the findings of the meta at least 10 sets per muscle group per week would be necessary to maximize uh, muscle growth however one uh, should consider uh, one's preferences, uh, previous experience and so on and so forth. Uh, I just wanted to note that cuz it's it's not um we often see this meta being criticized as a, a meta that it has been very absolute for the effect of training volume on, on hypertrophy, when in reality, I'd argue that it is a bit more cautious than often presented. However, um, third meta uh, by this vowel, oh, which if, was... If, if, if I could just say one thing about the Schoenfeld sure. meta as well, is um, I, I think that... Uh, I think a lot of people... Eh, I think a lot of people just don't know how to read analyses in the first place. But um, I think that the finding that was often kind of like t t taken away from it and, um, and, and people kind of ran with it was that 
they they did the kind of like meta regression component uh, that that Milo mentioned. Essentially, finding like for each additional set you do, uh, assuming linearity, how much more hypertrophy do you get? Um, and it was it was point three seven percent per week, which which I'll note like that sounds like nothing, but that is kind of like an absolute uh, percentage rather than a relative percentage. So you know basically if um, you know if if over ten weeks someone tends to make their muscles three percent larger. Uh, add another set, three point three seven percent larger, which, relatively speaking, would be like a ten percent or more increase. Um, so it's not like, you know, typically, it. I I, I think people get the point. What it's it's not a relative increase of point three seven percent, which would be literally nothing. Um, but yeah, like I, I think people took that and ran with it. They saw, hey, for for each set. Um, linear increase in hypertrophy, you know, therefore, uh, up to 10 sets per week, it is just throughout that entire span, a linear relationship between doing more volume and getting more muscle growth. Um, but that, that was kind of, it was based on like the, the, how things were categorized with the whole first category just being, um, less than five sets. And when you actually look at kind of the the bucket level effect sizes, um, it was 0. 0.306 for less than five sets per week. Um, and for 10 plus or nine plus, it was 0. 0.404, 0. 0.425. Um, basically finding that doing fewer than five sets per week, you could get 70, 75% as much growth as doing nine plus or 10 plus sets per week. Um, so it, it does already speak to at least, at least on that left, left-hand side of the, uh, volume versus hypertrophy curve, kind of a, a pseudo logarithmic relationship where it does seem like you get most of your gains from the first few sets you do and doing more than that did lead to more growth, but, um, you know, the, the, the slope of the line gets progressively less steep. So, um, yeah, the, the, the erroneous takeaway I often see is just from zero to 10 sets, there is a linear relationship between doing more sets and getting more growth, but it's not, not exactly like it, it does still seem like pseudo logarithmic. Yeah. There was a, a a really nice uh, depiction of what you just said in, uh, in a previous issue of Mass, and I think it was the the great doctor, Dr. Eric Helms, that presented it, where it essentially showed the findings of this meta and uh, tried to show you that, you know, with one to four sets, you get around, I think it was 65% um, of, of potential gains, then going from five to nine sets um, that allows you to be at like the 80, 80 something percent mark, and then going above nine sets. Um, allows you to be at like at the hundred percent at the theoretical hundred percent mark based obviously on the studies and the findings included in this meta um so yeah i think I think a lot of people have um essentially taken a, a strawman version of the this meta and have sort of attacked it but if you actually read the the full text things seem relatively cautious and lower volumes are hailed 
in the paper as still very effective for you know meaningful muscle gains um, and it is it is actually expressed verbatim at some point in the discussion that indeed lower volumes can lead to significant muscle gains however um let's move on to the latest uh, systematic review um on the effects of uh, different training the effect of different resistance training volumes on muscle hypertrophy by Basval et al. published in 2022, a bit more briefly than the uh, than going over the Schoenfeld meta. They essentially, their inclusion criteria were essentially um, at least six weeks of training, individuals with at least a year of resistance training experience in the ages of 18 to 35 years old, and they only included studies that had direct measurements of hypertrophy. So they excluded some of the previous studies that we saw in the Schoenfeld meta that looked at hypertrophy via Botpod and DEXA. So they only included seven studies, including the infamous Radelli um, paper. The way they looked at volume is they categorized it in the following categories. So they had low volume, which was categorized as anything below 12 sets. Moderate, which was 12 to 20 sets and high volume which was 20 plus sets now what they found was that there there was no significant benefit to high versus moderate volumes for the quadriceps femoris um, for the biceps brachii but they did find significant effect for uh, the the biceps brachii now keep in mind that in the meta they use the the term moderate volume but as i as i just mentioned moderate volume for the 12. for the triceps right sorry the the significant yeah. one yes yeah. okay but even though they used the term moderate um in in their discussion as i as i as i just mentioned moderate was still in many people's books at least in my opinion would be considered relatively high volume because they looked at 12 uh, to 20 sets now as far as their findings go and the, this will lend itself to a bit of a discussion among us is why did the triceps um see in a significant effect but not the biceps and the quads and it could be potentially that the triceps are more of a synergist than an agonist in many multi-joint movements uh, and therefore they may not be getting uh, a ton of stimulus from compound work but um, i'd like to hear what uh, dr wolf has to say because i think he has uh, a nice hot take on this particular meta yeah so i think it's it's interesting um generally Obviously, significance is something to pay attention to, but equally, I think in the when you have previous data, it is worth considering findings even though they're non-significant. For what it's worth, all effect sizes do still lean in favor of higher volumes, even for the biceps and for the quads, but the effect sizes are notably smaller and the confidence intervals do overlap to a decent extent with a null effect estimate. So whether or not there is a benefit to higher volumes for those muscles is definitely less clear than for the triceps. As to why that might be, it's pretty difficult to be sure, but one mechanism that was put forth by the authors in the paper was that, indeed, the triceps doesn't really get a ton of training stimulus for most compound movements, and there is some evidence to that effect, and specifically a study by Brandao and colleagues essentially compared the uh, chest, aka pec, and tricep hypertrophy from different exercises and different combinations of exercises and different exercise orders. Specifically, they had four groups. One group did just the bench press, 
One group did just skull crushers. One group started with a bench press and did skull crushers. And the final group did skull crushers followed by the bench press. And essentially, the tricep hypertrophy in the group doing just the bench press was generally worse compared to the group doing just skull crushers, which was also worse than the group do, the groups doing both. And so you probably want a combination of different exercises to, to maximize tricep hypertrophy. But specifically, it seems like compound exercises may not be as good as isolation exercises when it comes to tricep hypertrophy. So specifically, in this study, they found that the bench press did lead to significant lateral head hypertrophy, if I recall correctly. But in terms of long head and medial head hypertrophy, the groups that did include a skull crusher variation did come out a fair bit ahead. And therefore, if a lot of studies, and this is generally the case in study design from what I've seen, a lot of studies have a good amount of compound pressing work in there when they're investigating volume. And if a lot of that volume is therefore from a relatively ineffective exercise for the triceps, maybe there is just more of a benefit because you're making up for some of the reduced effectiveness from those compound pressing exercises. I think it's a reasonably likely explanation. Um, you could go the route of saying that different muscle groups differ on account of their anatomy or architecture to a meaningful extent, but I think that would be a even more speculative route to go down. Uh, but I'm open to hearing what Greg has to say here. Uh, my my speculation is that there were seven studies included here, but uh, for each individual muscle group, there were never more than five studies that fed into any of the individual uh, any of the individual like meta analysis comparisons. Um, so I kind of think that they were all vaguely underpowered, and we shouldn't put that much stock into whether or not one versus another cleared an arbitrary significance threshold, or we shouldn't have super high confidence in the like exact point estimate for each of these effect sizes. Um, I think that since there were only either four or five studies for each comparison, um, and none of them were like, you know, super long term super high quality 300 subjects like anything like that like for, for the most part though with one notable exception fairly short ish term studies fairly small ish sample sizes like i think i think a, a lot of the difference is just noise um like i don't think it's unproductive to discuss like oh like direct versus indirect volume or even like, could this be due to differences in muscle architecture or anatomy or whatnot? Like, I think those discussions could be had, but I, I personally wouldn't be too confident in any of those conclusions until I'm more confident that the effect does actually differ between muscle groups. <laughs> and until there's more research, I'm, I'm not even that confident that the true effect does actually differ. Or if it's just a bit of an art, an, an artifact of smallish body of research, and of the four or five studies in each of these comparisons, it wasn't the exact same group of four or five studies um, in each comparison. So it it could just be an effect that is like idiosyncratic to the studies that were included um, for each muscle group. So that's that's my take. Uh, 
I'm I have a level of skepticism about the the point estimates themselves. Yeah, the the one thing that is clear on the back of this um, meta analysis is that we are due a proper updated meta analysis because as you as you'll hear in a second, we're going to go over um, recently published studies on training volume, but um, we we think that the statistical approach and the the overall design uh, of the latest meta analysis, aka the Basval one may uh, not really be giving us as many answers as we would uh, as we would like but the good news and spoiler alert um actually semi spoiler alert because we're not going to share much uh, actual information we there is a meta analysis by the good soon to be doctors uh, over a data driven strength Zach Robinson and Josh Pelland and that should be pre-printed relatively soon. Terms and conditions apply. We are going to use this episode in order to pressure them to pre-print it at some point uh, in the near future. And yeah, they will be doing a bunch of uh, sub-analyses that will be quite, quite cool, quite informative, and will include obviously all the recent, uh, the recent evidence that has come out. But, and Milo helped me out here, my brother, there's a few other things that they will do that will be unique to their meta and will sort of help us answer a few, a few questions that we haven't been able to answer with the current body of literature. Yeah, so they're taking a, they're essentially casting a wider net when it comes to the studies included, I think, um, where they're trying to include studies, for example, that didn't equate every single other variable and trying to run sub-analyses on, okay, let's look only at the studies, for example, that perfectly equated volumes. And then, okay, let's look at the studies that did compare different volumes, but may also have been playing around with set structure or what have you. Um, more importantly as well, they are planning to look at per-session volumes and weekly volumes, which per-session volumes haven't been looked at in a while. So I think that'll be informative as far as letting us know, okay, on a per week basis, we want to do roughly this much volume, but on a procession basis, roughly how much volume might we want to do. So I think it might be worth going into the most recent study on super high training volumes that one, looked at the highest volumes yet, and two, that has spurred much of the recent controversy around volume to begin with. And that is a study by Ennis and colleagues. I think Anything you want to uh, unpack? Yeah, I think it's fair to give the audience a, a trigger warning. This was a study that dared to look at um, very high training volumes. And as we know, that's something that is both unethical and not informative because, you know, doing a study with a quote unquote extreme design is not what science is supposed to be. So, Dear listener, uh, we apologize for you know offending you potentially with us uh, talking about the design of the study and more specifically the high volumes that were used. Indeed, and is, I is think, that uh, stuff that people said like on your Instagram when you posted about the study previously? There were there were people that that, that approached this study with a hot look at what science has come to. 
there is science out there looking at you know 37 sets on average per muscle group per week but in in a way that they implied a malicious intent by the or like an, an unethical sort of yeah. intention like, by the authors what are you trying to prove here huh that we should all be training more and see better muscle growth like what's your agenda here researcher damn that's that's wild like ah man if 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 people really want to have that discussion, they should look at uh, they should look at some of the research coming out of Denmark, because um, apparently Danish folks are just fine with researchers ripping out a ton of their flesh. No, so so talking to talking to folks from from over there, I do think there's a very different culture around research participation. Where like in the U.S., for instance, uh, recruiting is generally extremely difficult um you know people are people are busy they don't really want to participate especially if the study is going to be fairly time consuming whereas from what i've heard in in other countries um particularly like the nordic and scandinavian countries there's much more of kind of a um like uh, an idea that that research is a collective enterprise for the public good and that if you have the opportunity to contribute to the development of human knowledge, you should try to do so. So apparently they have uh, a much easier time recruiting and including recruiting for some stuff that when I read the methods, I'm like, you would you would never find even five Americans that would participate in that study. And, and one example that comes to mind is they were... Mm, what was the topic? It was maybe something related to protein synthesis or maybe something related to muscle damage. I don't remember. The only the only part that I remember for sure is that it included people getting six biopsies of the same quadricep in the span of uh, like two weeks. Like it was uh, pre-exercise, immediately post-exercise and two hour post-exercise. Maybe it was eight biopsies. Yeah, I think, I think, no, no. Yeah, it was pre- maybe two hours post and like 48 hours later or something. And then, uh, you know, come back into the lab a week or two later and, and do the same thing again. Um, and for people listening, you can find videos of muscle biopsies being done. That is a big old needle. <laughs> like I, I don't want to get a biopsy done. I certainly don't want to get like six biopsies done of the same muscle in a two week span. Um, but yeah, so if, if people, read if people read a study and they're like man 50 sets in a in a week that's um yeah i i thought i thought that we got rid of stuff like that after nuremberg um didn't we learn our lesson after tuskegee uh i mean maybe we did in the u.s and denmark they're still uh they're still doing some gnarly stuff um anyway i and, and to be clear i think that's a good thing not a bad thing <laughs> But yeah, oh man, that that is that is funny. I had I had not encountered that. Um, like, were, were were they saying that this was like on what on what grounds would that be unethical research? Like, it was, on it what grounds it does it like violate the Declaration of Helsinki? 
it wasn't it wasn't unethical in in that sense, but more in the sense that they've done this crazy study that is impossible, and they've done it with uh, some not malicious intent, but like some form of bias towards higher volumes, and that such a design is so absurd that no person there in their right mind or nobody with uh, scientific integrity would look at it and be like, "Yep, this is a, a legitimate study." Yeah, and that the volumes are so high, essentially that it is pointless to study them because no one would ever try to do something similar in practice and therefore it is maliciously done as a means to give ideas to the young impressionable folk. As Have if those that's people how never met done. someone who, who likes working out? Like, th- this, this is the thing for me. It does seem like a lot of people just don't, like... I understand that a lot of humans in this world don't like working out. Like, I, I get that. Exercise participation rate's relatively low, blah, blah, blah. I get it. But, like, for people who for people who work in the industry, you would think that they either do or at least at some point did just like working out. And, like, Milo, you, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the amount of volume that you have done previously and, and still do at times. And, like... It was it was very much the same for me. Like the the summer that I discovered powerlifting and like really got into it, um, you know, like I, I had a summer job and whatnot. But uh, when I was not at work, I was I was at the gym. Like I was probably at the gym for a combined total of like five or six hours per day on average. Um, and it's not like I was just really getting it after, like really getting after it the whole time. But like. I was probably lifting for three hours a day, uh, and there was nothing else I wanted to do. There was no place that I would rather be, and I guarantee you, like my per my per muscle volume was higher than fifty sets per week across the board. And talk to people who love lifting and and describe this study to them, and like they will not get a look in their eye of like, oh, that's completely unrealistic. Like, why would someone even think to do that? They'll get a wistful look in their eye and they're like, ah, shit, I wish I had time to do that. That looks fun, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then you look at like people in CrossFit and you realize that their per session volume, just in terms of overall work, are actually pretty high. And at these sessions, ultimately, and we'll get into the study in a second, they only took about an hour and a half at the most, thereabouts. Like they weren't super long sessions, twice a week, an mm-hmm. hour and a half. For people who love training, not that crazy. Yet people were acting as though this was totally impossible. It, but it's so it's, funny to me. Sorry, <laughs> la- last, last, last ADHD comment. It's like the Drake meme where you know he points, uh, he points at like small off and all sorts of crazy like ten by ten templates that people would would not just do back in the day, but they would like hail as the thing for muscle and hypertrophy gains. And then the the Drake going like, not that. And then the the study the study's protocol. Yeah, just for one for one concrete example, um, when so like when I got into training, it was when uh, it was when Westside was still huge, and one of the one of like the classic Westside things is just that like no matter what you're doing, your back is too weak. Like you need a stronger upper back to give you a good platform for bench press. You need a strong lower back for um, squats and deadlifts, whatever. Uh, and, and so, like for upper back in particular, because um, like I I had lifted weights a little bit before I before I got into powerlifting, but you know I 
I, I I did way more bench press than back training, as is, I think, pretty classic for new trainees. So I was like, oh, no, like my back is is so underdeveloped. I don't have the best platform possible for bench press. Uh, I'm going to fuck up my shoulders because that's another thing people were saying at the time. Like, uh, so I was like, I, I need to I need to catch up on back training. And um, so. I had three upper body days per week where, you know, I, I really got after it with back training in those workouts. Um, but another, another like Louis Simmons West side thing was basically doing like small multiple workouts per day to target things you need to work on. Um, and so like I was doing like my just baseline level of just like stuff that I did for like, yeah, just trying to just trying to get my back back up to speed is um, I would do three sets of pull-ups or pull-downs and three sets of rows like morning, afternoon, evening, like before school, uh, like middle of the day, like when I got home from school after school or kind of like morning lunch and dinner um, during the summer. So that was, 18 sets per day, just, you know, just as a a smooth cruising baseline, uh, all of those sets taken to failure. And then on my upper body days, it was like another five, six sets of pull downs, another five, six sets of rows. So yeah, like, I don't, I don't know, man. Uh, I, I hear, I hear 50 sets per week and I'm like, well, I'm nowhere close to that on anything now. Um, just cause stuff's way more constrained than it used to be but uh i i have actually thought about just doing something similar to that again just for like push-ups or something just like hey just do like 10 15 sets of push-ups per day if, if nothing else that'll you know it, it'll be like a time efficient way to to preserve some muscle but yeah like yeah f- f- 50 sets like that's that's a lot but like that's not unreasonable like i'm i'm positive i've done like twice that much for certain muscle groups in the past. Like it's in, I'm not, I'm not unique in that regard. Like you talk, you talk to someone who got into lifting when they were young and fucking love lifting. And I promise you they've done 50 to hundred sets for certain muscle groups at certain points in time. Like it's, it's not, it's not, it's not even like it's a thing that only like one in a thousand people could even contemplate. Like, most people who got into lifting when they were young and had a lot of time on their hands and love lifting have done that or more. And it's not, it's not even uncommon, you know? Yeah, I fully agree. I think before we fully delve into the practical discussion of why you should be doing 300 sets per session now, um, we're just going to, you know, Look at the evidence because ultimately there have been studies on super high volumes that weren't included in these analyses um, so that we can see, okay, is there any merit to doing super high volumes to begin with? And then we can head into some discussions around how do you implement this? Is it even feasible for people who should and shouldn't be doing it and so forth? So as I mentioned, the most recent study and probably most controversial one was the one by Ennis and colleagues, where essentially they took a bunch of males that on average squatted around three plates or around 315, um, and they put them all through a relatively extensive study design that aimed to minimize the impact of previous volume, for example, how much they were training beforehand on how much hypertrophy they then see from subsequent training, right? 
So they essentially started with a two-week baseline phase where all participants were training with similar volumes. Then for two weeks, all participants across all groups reduced their volumes as a means to kind of have them wash out whatever their body was used to. Then they had a two-week familiarization phase where all groups gradually increased volume to the same baseline. And then they were finally starting their sort of individualized training based on what group they were in. There were three groups. One group simply trained with 22 weekly sets for their quads every week, split across two sessions. In each session, they would do the back squat, the leg press, and the leg extension. And their volume was essentially evenly split across all three exercises. Depending on the session they were doing, whether it was session one or session two, they were generally working between six or eight, six to eight, or 10 to 12 reps. In the second group, they also started at 22 weekly sets, so 11 sets per session. But over the course of the study, every two weeks for 12 weeks, they would add four sets to their weekly quad volume, such that across the study, across the 12 weeks that they were training for, they performed on average 32 weekly training sets for their quads. And finally, the third group was adding six sets every two weeks, such that on average, they were doing 37 weekly sets for their quads. And they actually ended the study the last two weeks of the 12-week intervention at 52 weekly sets. So they were doing 26 sets of quads in one session and 26 sets of quads in the next session. They also did some pretty easy hamstring training, around five or six sets, if I recall correctly, each session um, or across the week, but nothing major. And as far as their upper body training went, they were free to train upper body separately in the gym, but it wasn't standardized. So it might have been that they were doing some training or it might have been that they were not training at all. But their quad training was standardized between the groups. So the only difference really was the amount of volume being performed. All sets were taken to two reps in reserve, so essentially they could have performed two more reps before hitting failure, with the exception of taking every last set on every exercise for all groups to failure. So whenever they finished their squats for their last set, they would go all the way to failure. Same for a leg press, same for a leg extension, no matter what session it was or what group they were in. The authors measured vastus lateralis, muscle thickness, and cross-sectional area, at least 72 hours after the last lifting session was performed so as to minimize the impact of any swelling or essentially the pump you get from a session on the results. Now, what did they actually see? Well, broadly speaking, they saw that the more volume was being performed, the more favorable the hypertrophy results were. There was no significant difference, so the p-value didn't cross that significance threshold of 0.05, but generally the effect sizes were more favorable as the volume was higher. So for the lowest volume group, for example, in terms of cross-sectional area, they saw an improvement of about 4%. In the moderate volume group, or the 37, sorry, 32 weekly sets group, they saw an improvement of around 10%. And for the highest volume group, they saw an improvement of about 11%. For muscle thickness, the lowest volume group saw an improvement of about 3%, the moderate volume group of about 5%, and the highest volume group of about 9%. And so generally, the largest improvements were seen in the highest volume groups. Now, there was some discussion on social media, and I'm sure we can briefly touch on this, of variance or individual response. The authors provided graphs indicating how did individual participants grow or not grow from different training approaches. And this led to some discussion on social media, specifically in the highest volume group, for example, one of the participants actually lost size when you look at their cross-sectional, or a couple of participants 
loss size when you look at their either cross-sectional area measurement or their muscle thickness measurement. And some people took that to mean that there is a high degree of variance between participants when it comes to high-volume training. Now, I'd be keen to get both of your guys' thoughts first on that. Um, just, you know, sound it out a little bit and see what you think on that. Um, yeah, I mean, so one one thing you, you broadly see in the research, um, uh, th- there was a paper by um, James Steele and colleagues, a, a meta-analysis on variance in sports science, really really riveting stuff uh that i i'm i'm not saying that sarcastically i i find it very interesting i i love to read about the statistical properties of the data that i deal with um but i don't think most people read it and that's fine i wouldn't expect them to uh but like one of the very basic takeaways in that paper is that uh any variance metric tends to scale with magnitude metrics um so essentially in anything where the average percentage change is larger, the standard deviation should generally go up along with that. Um, and so with that as just kind of my baseline context, it doesn't really seem like like the the absolute amount of variance that occurred was larger in the um in in the highest volume group, but the mean response was also larger. So kind of variability scaled to response magnitude was right in line with what you would or at least right in line with what I would kind of expect. Like you see larger mean responses, you see more variability. That's, that is just, just the way of things like with, uh, just, just like vastus lateralis, uh, cross-sectional area, the lowest group, it was four plus or minus 3.6%. Um, and in the, uh, highest volume group, it was 11.2 plus or minus 8.8%, uh, for, the change in muscle thickness, it was 3.1 plus or minus 4.4 versus 8.9 plus or minus 8.1. So kind of like the variability observed was actually slightly smaller relative to the, the mean response magnitude. Um, so yeah, it's it was sim- it was simultaneously the case that the the variability was greater in the higher volume groups, but scale to response magnitude, it was actually slightly lower. Um and there's yeah there there's there's nothing about that that I find alarming or even surprising um I don't know uh yeah that's yeah. <laughs> that's that's kind of my takeaway just looking at the data itself I agree wholeheartedly I think it, people essentially saw the individual responses graphed out on on paper and they see that oh this participant appears to have lost size pre to post that must mean that there's a large degree of individual variation when in reality for almost any given intervention because there is both some degree of variance with the measurement tool there's some degree of biological variance there's potentially going to be some degree of intervention variance there's a lot of sources of variance involved and you couldn't for sure say that because you saw some variance even that it is due to the intervention itself right that is a pretty big jump and i think it's one that people who haven't necessarily been exposed to much method stuff in the past or quick to make. And it's kind of a very intuitive thing to think, but it is largely speaking, uh, especially with a relatively smaller sample size like this, very difficult to tell 
what the exact degree of variance or individual response to a given phenomenon actually is. Yeah, and the and that was somewhat ignored for the quote unquote lower volume groups, um, as not everybody made amazing gains in those groups as well. Um, another criticism. So when the study came out, a lot of people were quick to focus on criticisms versus just interpreting it as another piece of the puzzle. And there was another criticism on the fact that we highlighted that, hey, yeah, there wasn't a statistically significant difference, but the difference observed may be of practical meaningfulness, which, you know, in a applied field, I think that's, that's useful. And obviously a lot of people um, chose to highlight the, the fact that the that the authors themselves noted that there was no statistical significance. Um, but at the same time, if anything, this was further evidence against uh, junk volume. And uh, as the authors also highlighted, which was then not highlighted by the people criticizing the study, this at least serves as evidence uh, for a higher ceiling as far as a volume threshold for hypertrophy goes. Because again, overall, the trend was positive for hypertrophy and strength uh, with the groups that did, quote unquote, absurd uh, training volumes. Yeah. Just to note again, this was the highest volume investigation to date with 37 weekly sets. So that's worth noting. And that actually spurred a lot of controversy as well regarding was this protocol infeasible? Some of the most outraged critics of uh, this study in high volume in general went so far as to say that the protocol wasn't feasible. And in fact, one of them actually went so far as to offer up a prize fund of $1,000 to whomever could successfully complete the session and record it. And therefore, I actually went ahead and performed one of these sessions from the last two weeks in the highest volume group, essentially unprepared. So for context, I've been doing maybe five to 10 sets of quad training up to that point per week, if that, um, and hadn't been squatting, hadn't been leg pressing, hadn't been doing leg extensions really. And so I was about as unprepared as they come versus the participants here having had up to 14 or so weeks of preparation beforehand. And so I did the session and it took me about an hour and a half. I completed it. I successfully received the prize money. And was it a hard session? Absolutely. Do I see it being feasible in the context of research and having people looking at you and encouraging you and being compensated for your time? Yes. And so I think the feasibility question, unless someone's just really not ever trained that hard and just hasn't been exposed to that, it may just be used as a vehicle for dealing in bad faith and trying to throw out the study altogether versus actually being something that oh, this is actually impossible. Ultimately, we're talking about spending an hour and a half in the gym twice a week, or in the lab in this case. That was kind of my takeaway from the feasibility discussion. For sure. And the, 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 same, the same approach is often not, uh, not borrowed when, for example, the stretching study came out on the cows where people stretched their cows for seven, seven hours per week at a, like a nine out of 10 intensity where people were happy to accept that that was possible within the context of a scientific study. For full transparency, I attempted the session as well for camaraderie's sake, uh, but I didn't complete the session because I felt nauseous after the squats. But my quad training was even lower before, so I was doing a maximum of one set of squats for a single repetition or like three reps per week. 
And I got through the squats. Uh, we were trying to keep up with the rest times um, noted in the study, at, at least the, the minimum threshold of the rest time. So Milo, actually, if you look at the, the time it took him to complete, and the authors noted the time it took for participants to complete the session, he did it quicker than the average uh, value reported. Um, but because I felt nauseous and there was no prize money for me, I was like, you know what? I've done my, I've done 600% more volume than I usually do. I'm going to call it a day and not puke in the lab. And I'll just uh, support my boy Milo. I did just want to say something about the statistical interpretation, like people um, uh, really zeroing in on significance or not. Um, I, I think, I think that, like that that is another nuanced topic that I don't know. Like I I apologize if this comes across as elitist, but I don't think m most people are equipped to have that discussion in a way that would actually be interesting and useful. Um because there there are a lot of considerations there. It's just like a a null effect doesn't mean a nil effect. Um there's a question and, and there's also just a question of like uh and, and this is a philosophical question of prioritizing type one versus type two error where um this this isn't the way it always ends up working out in practice in science but at least in theory like what you're taught is that um type type one errors are much worse than type two errors type one errors are false positives when you um say that something is true or you say that there are a difference between two things where there's not actually a difference um whereas type 2 error which is a false negative where something is truly better or different than something else but you say there's insufficient evidence to conclude that these things are different or that one is better um that is generally seen as better like you want to minimize ideally you want to have no type 1 or type 2 error but there are resource trade-offs. In order to do that, you need enormous sample sizes. Like, like you need things that cost more than most researchers have funding access to. So, like the standard, um, the standard kind of like setup that people pursue is they're looking. For, they set their alpha at 0.05. They set their beta at 0.8, um, which explicitly says, "I think type one errors are four times worse than type two errors." Um, like you, this is oversimplifying, but essentially you you won't have an only 5% chance to make a type one error, but you're fine with a 20% chance to make a type two error. Because in in essence, to also get that the beta up to 0.95, get your type two error rate down to 5%, you might need to, you know, increase your study population by a hundredfold, which, which often just isn't feasible. Um, and there's a reason for that. Uh, science, you're inherently dealing with limited time, limited funding, and people are trying to make discoveries and learn new things that push human knowledge and understanding forward in a way that is efficient and leaves people with a body of knowledge that is solid that they can have confidence in. That's not always what happens, but that is at least the value of science, like of the scientific community. That is their goal. That's what they're pursuing. Um, and so if you have a bunch of false positives, 
Like, that's bad because, one, it shakes people's confidence in science because those things turn out to not be true. And then people are like, ah, science is flip-flopping. This is bad, whatever. Um, And it also ends up wasting a lot of time and resources because you get a false positive that is kind of the, the kernel that seeds a new research niche. And now other researchers are going to be like, oh, that's cool. Let's um, extend and expand on these findings. So, you know, they run another study trying to like replicate and follow up on something that wasn't true in the first place. Um, and that's, yeah, it, it just sends people on a wild goose chase that ends up being unproductive. So, yeah, you you really try to avoid false positives in science. In yeah. um, in like practical situations that's not always the case and in fact it's rarely the case um like you don't necessarily like it's context dependent but like you don't necessarily have a preference for false positives or false negatives just on on principle um like in effect if you were training an athlete and it's in a sport where a half a percent difference in performance between competitors means, you know, maybe making the podium or not, or being good enough to get sponsored or go pro or whatever versus not. And there's some training practice or intervention that isn't completely evidence free. There, there is some, there is some research on it, but let's say there are two studies. There are no known downsides to doing this, but both of the studies did not find statistically significant effects but they both suggested that this thing, whatever it is, my, you know, it's, it's kind of what we're looking at in the Ennis study. Like the, the percentage change is larger, the effect size is larger, but the difference wasn't large enough or the population just wasn't large enough to clear that threshold of statistical significance. Do, do you as a coach do this with your athlete? Uh, you know, assuming it doesn't, there there aren't like recovery considerations or cost or whatever, like blah, blah, blah. Just like in a vacuum, do you do it? Um, and I would say yes, absolutely. Because, you know, it doesn't seem like it's going to hinder their performance. You're not, you know, the, the, the statistics of the study don't suggest that you should be 99.9% sure that it will improve their performance. But if you're 80% sure, that it might have a small effect. And again, like it's feasible, doesn't cost too much, blah, 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 whatever. Like you're, you're going to go for it, you know, like, um, and, and that, that is essentially saying that you have a higher threshold for tolerating type one error than type two error in that situation. Like you're, you're fine with doing something that might be effective, might be ineffective because the cost there is, smaller like the 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 cost of not doing something that might be effective is real and the cost of doing something that may be ineffective is not like the essentially you're you're just kind of like just weighing basic probabilities instead of specifically uh favoring type one versus type two error You, you know what i'm saying and so like um yeah like i like this is something where i uh, like I've, I've said different things in different contexts. And I think s- some people have said that I've, uh, kind of like flip flopped on it, but I haven't, I've been consistent this whole time when I'm, uh, discussing research 
from like a conservative scientific perspective, I do generally take the position of, hey, let's let's do things really conservatively. Um, you know, if if like let's let's not try to talk about non-significant differences as if they were significant um and and all of that stuff. Whereas when I'm when I'm in coach mode and I'm talking about things practically, it's like, hey, you know, it, it does seem like there's a difference here. Um, and we're like 80% sure this is better instead of 99% sure this is better. But hey, 80% is fine, you know, just because just the, the context is different and the types of the cost of making type one versus type two errors differs based on context. Um, and so, yeah, like they're. Yeah, like I, I don't necessarily see a problem in treating a non-significant difference as if it's real in a practical context. You just shouldn't be like super overconfident about it, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. You see you see a sort of a double standard sometimes in the science communication world. So, for example, that this uh, new study on diet breaks came out that showed that uh, it was a meta-analysis actually that showed that diet breaks did have a significant effect in resting metabolic rate. Uh, but obviously, the scientific community was quick to point out that, hey, that translates to, I think it was like 57 calories in terms of actual difference. So everybody was quick to say, yep, there was a statistically significant effect. But in terms of practical takeaways, mm, eh, you know, may, there's not really much for you to to take there. But in contrast with this study, there was so, so much... Um, so so much quote unquote triggering around the fact that the the, the positive outcomes were highlighted in a, in a way even though they were not statistically significant that as you said as a coach i personally don't agree with uh, that approach yeah and it's interesting as well because with both effect size delineations like how large does an effect size need to be to be considered small versus moderate versus large and with the general p-value threshold people set, or essentially what they're willing to uh, accept as a type 1 error rate. Both of those are essentially things that were once set by someone who explicitly said, oh, said, oh, this is a random recommendation that you can use for illustration's sake, but you should ultimately be setting your own delineations based on what makes sense in your field of research and what exactly you're looking at. But then everyone just said, okay, you gave us an example. I'm just going to run with it now. And then basically much of sports science and science at large has actually just used those figures as like, a, okay, we're all using this now, I guess. Uh, never mind considering the area of research as a pertinent factor to consider when interpreting our findings. Yeah. I mean, one, one of my hottest takes just across the board is I... For... <laughs> For most for most training studies, like I don't even think they should do statistics on them. Like I I think they should just report summary statistics, um, and just say hey, don't like no one should put too much stock in this one study, um, and just wait just wait for the meta. Like you know, just re report all of your data in a way that will eventually make it easy to meta analyze, but. Are the results in this one study statistically significant versus not? Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. You shouldn't care. Like it's 
you shouldn't overgeneralize regardless. Um, if you're, if your functional takeaways from a study change, if the p-value is 0.04 versus 0.06, you're an idiot. Like there's it that's a that's a completely irrelevant threshold to cross. It means nothing to you. Like even if it's 0.01 and it's a single study, you still shouldn't have that much confidence in it. Um, so yeah, like I, I, I sort I sort of just think they shouldn't even test for significance in most individual papers. I think they should just report the the results in a way that will be easy to eventually meta analyze and just say, hey, here's what we found. Take 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 of it what you will. I mean, hey, I hear you, and I think a lot of authors hear you. But then you also have to talk to the papers. Okay, to the yeah, journals. Re- re- reviewer two doesn't agree, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. And if reviewer two doesn't agree, guess what, pal? Your paper is not being published. So we yeah, do I live know. in a society. I know it sucks. <laughs> yeah, that was that was that was a refreshing take to hear from um, real Doctor Greg Knuckles. Yeah, not, all not a doctor. <laughs> doctor in our hearts, you know. Sure, Very where nice. it counts. Honestly, um, master is a cooler title. It's, yeah, sure. It's true. In an absolute yeah. sense, I think master of science sounds Versus. much better than doctor. What does doctor mean? You know, Doctor of philosophy as well. Well, mine was an MA. I've, I've, master, <laughs> I've mastered the, the art. <laughs> I've mastered the art of exercise science. You might say <laughs> the art of lifting. Yes, yes. Yeah. I was about, oh, yeah. man. You know? Uh, Anyways, so love. back to the study. Ultimately, with this most recent study by Ennis and colleagues, we are talking about the highest volume study to date with up to 37 sets. So where the meta-analysis by Creer and colleagues in 2010 and the meta-analysis by Schoenfeld and colleagues was essentially unable to provide us with any answers regarding where does that inverted U relationship start to tail off and what do we know about higher volumes than just moderate volumes? This kind of begins to provide some answers. Maybe not the answers many of us were hoping for, but I do think this provides the general takeaway of, for a single muscle group, right, in the context of just training the quads at least, going all the way up to 30 to 40 sets per week for muscle may actually result in more muscle growth versus just 20 sets. And that is pretty controversial and pretty new as far as the evidence goes, because no other study to date had looked at that high of a volume. And I think that that is important to note because while we did have a number of studies comparing, say, under 10 sets to over 10 sets, this is the first study of its kind, suggesting that we haven't actually found that drop-off or even potentially the plateau area of that volume relationship. So if we go back to the inverted U shape of the volume and growth relationship, I'm not sure we've detected the plateau area or the drop-off area just yet even with 30 to 40 sets. But ultimately, this is a single study, and I think we do need to look at the other evidence on the topic to see, all right, well, are there studies actually showing that past 20 sets, there is reduced hypertrophy or a uh, stagnation in hypertrophy? Because ultimately, this one study doesn't tell us that you should be going all the way up to 30 or 40 sets for hypertrophy as a definite takeaway. No, I, I, I agree with that. I do also... I don't know. One just important note to make, I think, is that um, oftentimes in any 
in any individual study, you're you're dealing with like discrete groups of people. And so you're looking for average responses. And then with meta-analyses, meta-regression, you're looking at averages of averages. Um, and so I, I do think um, in, in some studies we'll talk about later, um, like a study by Ostrowski, study by Hasselgreave, study by Amherthalingham, um, there, there have been some, re- there have been some studies to this point where you did see um, either similar muscle growth in higher versus lower volume groups, or maybe even slightly lower muscle growth in in the in some higher volume groups, um, which is you know c- compatible with that idea of the inverted U relationship, and maybe in the context of the groups recruited in those studies and the exercises done and the study protocols. You very well could have been seeing plateaus at 20, 25 sets, something like that. Um, whereas it very well could be that on average, the plateau, you know, writ large is higher, or it could be lower in other populations and other contexts. Like we're like we're we're again, like we're trying to look at all of the research on this topic. And so we are we we ourselves are trying to probe for that average of averages. Um, but I do think it's entirely plausible that for some people, they do, they do hit that really hard point of diminishing returns. Um, you know, further increases in volume do nothing for them or might even be counterproductive at 20 sets per week, or maybe even 15 sets per week. Um, or I mean, you know, like I feel like this should be relatively uncontroversial, um, if you take someone who has been completely sedentary, maybe they're elderly, poor cardiometabolic health, and have them do what what to us would be a very, very reasonable to low level of volume, like nine sets per week, every set to failure, really getting after it, that's going to be too much. You know, like they're <laughs> and they it wouldn't surprise me if they adapted to it, but I, I would expect performance to regress um, and there to be a a lot of muscle catabolism going on for at least the first three or four weeks that they were doing that. So, you know, the, the, the exact size of the inverted U relationship and where those different markers fall, like where's the plateau, where does it start dropping off, um, where where do you start approaching diminishing returns, all of those things. It is going to be very context dependent, and I don't think um, I, I think a lot of people view it as a conflict in the research. Um, for there to have been some studies where higher volume groups failed to uh, grow more than low to moderate volume groups within the same study, versus the study where the higher volume group did appear to grow more than like lower but still quite high volume groups. Like I, I think a lot of people look at those things and they their their approach to resolving that apparent conflict is to say, well, one of these is right and one of them is wrong, versus maybe they're both right and it's a question of context. Um whereas I think they're probably both right and it's a question of context. <laughs> yeah. I totally agree. I think that generalizability heavily depends on a variety of factors, right? Like, can you take the findings from the study and apply them to your own context? Depends on essentially how similar 
the two contexts are. And so that's why we often refer to ecological validity when interpreting a study. It's essentially referring to how similar are the conditions within the study to your conditions in the real world, right? Um, that begs one interesting question, which is a lot of people mentioned this study was only in the quads. And so with this looking at some of the highest volumes yet, do we think that this could be done for a variety of muscle groups at once, right? Because we're talking about doing on average, up to about 37 weekly sets for a single muscle. And there have been questions around, can you do that for several muscle groups at once and still recover and see a benefit? And that is a difficult question to answer. And we'll go into some studies in the next episode regarding how much total volume across your whole program still can potentially yield a benefit. Are there studies where they train multiple muscle groups with high volumes at once? And how many total weekly sets can they get away with and potentially still see a benefit? But just as a quick question, do you think that you can do such high volumes for multiple muscle groups at once? Is it feasible? Is it potentially beneficial? I think it's going to be interesting when we, we look at some of the other studies. Uh, for example, I, I think that there are some protocols out there that are more, quote unquote, shocking than the the protocol that we we saw in the Anna study, although they may be somewhat lower in uh, in volume, they're in my opinion they seem harder, and those were were fine. I do think that there are contexts and there are individuals, as Greg also you know mentioned, that especially younger individuals who may have more free time and they may be super passionate about lifting, where I can see scenarios where they can do thirty seven weekly sets for multiple muscle groups and do just fine, but. That, that the, the question and the, the sort of anger that came on the back end of the, the study doesn't make a lot of sense to me because even if you were to follow the recommendations or the recommendations even if you were to take the protocol of the study and apply it to each muscle group you would very quickly know whether that's possible or not for you and whether that's a, a smart idea however from a feasibility standpoint i do think that there are cases where people can get away with such high volumes for relatively quote-unquote long periods of time um but yeah it's not like we've specifically looked at uh, a bunch of different uh, a bunch of different studies where they actually you know did 37 sets on average for multiple muscle groups but personally yeah i do think that there are some people that can pull this off for you know 8 to 12 weeks and be fine terms and conditions apply yeah i i think um I wouldn't be surprised if someone could do it for multiple muscle groups, but it's a question of how many. Like, I, th I think you could do this for quads and also biceps. Like, I think that would be fine. Could you do it for quads and also hamstrings and glutes? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Um, just, just kind of like uh, zooming out a little bit. Um, a... Mm, like a, a way that I kind of like mentally approach questions like this is that I look at kind of like gym lore and use that to inform a prior. So the rigorous scientific way to do it is to assume the null, assume you know nothing and there's no difference between things, no difference, you know, a, a, a standard null hypothesis. Um, I think... Again, going back to the idea of how you interpret significant versus non-significant differences in a practical versus research context, I think the assumptions that you take into answering a question are 
are or at least should be a little bit different in a practical versus research context where my assumption going into to things as a lifter or a coach is just that people who've been lifting for a long time and like kind of the lore that's built up in the resistance training community, there's probably something to it. Like a lot of it's probably right. Or if it's wrong, it's probably not catastrophically wrong. Um, and so for, for something like this, the idea of, Hey, when you're going really high volume, should you do that for just one or two muscle groups or everything at once? Brings me to the idea of of specialization phases that have been popular in bodybuilding for decades, um, where a lot of people over a long time have had a lot of success doing moderate volumes for most muscle groups and just really, really hammering one or two for a while. Um, and so, you know, I, since that is the practical way that this has tended to be applied for a long time, I think, and so many coaches do caution against doing specialization phases for multiple muscles simultaneously. And again, have cautioned against that for a long time. Um, I like that, that is, that is my prior here. Like we don't have that much research on it but i do sort of think that uh yeah like if if you're really going to push the volume maybe limit it to one or two muscle groups um you know ramping up to 52 sets for all major muscle groups per week i'm not going to go really far out on a limb and say that that's like strictly speaking impossible and no one could ever do that but i suspect most people couldn't um and i suspect that would be very unwise as general advice like i i think I think I think one or two muscles is probably where you should limit it to if you do want to experiment with really high volumes. Yeah, it was so the the one thing that we continuously highlighted with this study is that the practical applications as far as volume goes, volume and hypertrophy goes, did not really change much on the back on the back of this. So when when this came out, myself and Milo looked at it. We thought, ah. Cool. Seems like you could do much more than we previously thought and still not lose muscle and potentially even make greater hypertrophy gains. But nobody really took this and went, you know what, we're going to now force our clients or the athletes that we work with to do you know, 37 sets on average for multiple muscle groups per week. But rather, as you said, hey, you know, if you are trying to get your side delts and biceps as big as humanly possible, and that's like your life's purpose, there may be something to doing even more than 20 sets. And based on this data, it seems like you're going to another data. It seems like you're a worst case scenario. You're not going to, you're not going to grow a ton, but you're not going to lose muscle and overtrain. Best case scenario, you do see a bit more growth. Yeah, and I do agree with that takeaway. I I think one thing people forget about when it comes to the volume research is the way that volume is counted. So generally, volume is counted as both direct and indirect sets. So for example, when they're counting for tricep volume, as mentioned earlier, they would be counting both a number of sets from bench pressing, which involves a variety of muscle groups at once, but also from exercises like the skull crusher, right? So with that in mind, People often see the figure for the triceps of, oh, 20 plus sets a week might be ideal for tricep hypertrophy based on the Basvamit analysis. That seems quite high. When in reality, many common training programs far exceed 20 sets a week. And I think that's one area where 
I know you said maybe two muscle groups at once might be feasible for such high volumes, Greg. I do think that we may be able to get away with more than that. Just because oh, I, like, I was, I was talking like I was talking for like fifty plus for oh gotcha for for, yeah, yeah. for twenty for like 20, thirty sets or whatever. Sets. Yeah. yeah, I I think yeah. Cause I mean the the thing that always comes to mind is when people when people are like ah like more more than twenty sets for a muscle group per week that's suicidally high volume. The the thing that comes to mind is like dude you do like four sets of bench press and like four sets of skull crushers or pushdowns and you train chest and tries three times a week that's 24 sets like that's it that that to me feels like a normal to low training volume cert certainly not anything just out of this world you know um so, but but yeah like and i mean i'd even say the same if you weren't doing bench press and you were doing uh four sets of skull crushers and four sets of pushdowns three times a week like that that do, that doesn't seem wild to me but yeah, sub out one of those isolations for bench press, and yeah, it's like, come on, come on, dude. That's yeah, it's a, it's a reasonable amount of triceps training. Like, it's not super low volume, but I I would never look at that and say, holy shit, look look at look at that triceps volume, twenty four sets. Well, certainly, if you're doing that, there's no, there's absolutely no way that you could also do four sets of rows and four sets of curls three times a week like that now now you're doing a specialization program for two different muscle groups like i'm i'm not saying that but i i am saying yeah w- once you start get getting into the 50 sets per week for a muscle group yeah yeah now now you probably don't want to bring too many more along for the party yeah and that's a really good point because it brings me to an area of the research i don't think we have much in and that is how much volume so we have some evidence on how much volume people benefit from in terms of muscle growth but that is usually on single muscle groups but when it comes to how much volume can people tolerate in terms of like recovery week to week over say a relatively more extended time period where they have the time to acclimate to higher volumes potentially closer to failure do we actually have any idea of what people can tolerate and sustain and potentially therefore benefit from as far as high volumes go. We have some indication with the volume research, but as far as saying, look, based on the evidence, we know for sure that you only want to specialize on three muscle groups at once. Any more than that, and your body just implodes. You just can't recover. The truth is we just don't have that evidence. And so looking past even just the volume research, volume and hypertrophy, we are lacking that evidence from a more applied standpoint and one of the ideas we were playing around with previously was to conduct such a study, but we'll see. But um, it is just an area of evidence I would like to see more stuff done. And just in the same vein as was, we have evidence suggesting that training to failure is more fatiguing and that you know training with higher volumes is more fatiguing. But to what extent is that attenuated by just repeated exposure, right? Because we have evidence yeah. that acutely training to failure is more fatiguing by a decent chunk. But hey, if you do it five times, 10 times over 12 weeks, let's say, it's a lot less clear. No, that that that's a great point. Um, and I don't want to go too far down that discussion now. For 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 the listener, something Milo said a second ago that don't know if you caught it, but just want to to pull it out. Uh, this has become uh, episode one of a two part series. We were planning on doing it all together. Looked at how long this episode is running and how much more is left on the outline. We're we're not. 
we're not doing uh, another aspartame episode, but for high volume training, uh, we're, we're splitting this into a two parter. So we are going to wrap this up uh, pretty soon. Um, and, and one of the things we're going to discuss in part two is some of that stuff related to habituation, like something that may seem crazy now. Yeah, maybe, maybe you adapt to it over time. So, yeah, don't I don't want to go too far down that road right now. Um, but I do want to say um, like, like one of the things you said, uh, you were talking about like proximity to failure and that. Um, leading to more fatigue and a related thing um, and and something I wanted to bring up is uh, and and this is also something we're going to dig in to more in part two but uh, people who the the most vocal critics of high volume research like this um, they do often uh, have have criticisms that seem uh, you know, not unreasonable in a vacuum, but that they oftentimes wouldn't apply to um, uh, like topics or lines of research that they themselves are more sympathetic to. So one of and again, like I'm not going to talk about it now. We'll talk about it in part two. Um, but one of the criticisms that you often see of the high volume studies is people saying like, well, high volume training, like that's going to cause more muscle damage. It's going to cause more edema and swelling. And so in studies where you do observe greater increases in muscle thickness or greater increases in cross-sectional area with high volume training, that's not actually indicative of more muscle growth. That is indicative of greater muscle damage and more fluid retention in the muscle, more swelling, more edema. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's really all we're seeing, and it's all a mirage, and high-volume training doesn't actually lead to more muscle growth. I would just say that that is a little bit of, of uh, like, special pleading and treating, um, like, u- using different standards to critique things you agree with versus things you don't agree with, because oftentimes those folks are people who are proponents of training very close to failure or to failure which also if you want to look at the acute research on muscle damage it causes more muscle damage than training further from failure but they wouldn't then turn around and say oh well also training to failure mm, the research on that is all a mirage and in fact training further from failure causes just as much muscle growth but when you go to failure causes more muscle damage more swelling that's all it's picking up on and so if if that's if that's some if that is a criticism you have, be consistent about it. You know, uh, if something you disagree with might cause more muscle damage, and you're going to say, "Well, we we should discount this research due to that fact," but the thing that you also like also causes more muscle damage. Hmm, maybe maybe apply the same criticisms across the board. Um, if you're not a hack. Uh, the one thing also that I want, <laughs> one thing also that I wanted to, Shots fired. to, I'm not talking about anyone in particular. So if someone gets mad, you're telling on yourself. Um, th- something else that I did just want to circle back around on about just this, this paper itself. Um, since, since we are going to wrap it up after talking about the metas, talking about the Ennis study and get into to everything else later. Um, I did just want to bring up. Two more things about the Innis study itself. 
um, that I don't think I've seen discussed very much. Um, and that is that one, uh, a standard, a standard approach to criticizing research you disagree with is to say that the authors of the study were biased and they set it up in order to get a particular result. And, you know, they're, they're just going with like what, what they believe and kind of like cooking the books or whatever, which one I'll note, that's a very serious accusation to make. Like that's tantamount to accusing someone of academic fraud, um, which, you know, they could lose their job for. And, uh, yeah, you know, researchers are busy and probably won't sue you, but that, that is arguably like legally actionable if, <laughs> if someone wanted to go down that road, but whatever. Um, but yeah, in, in the case of the Ennis study, uh, when you look at the author list, um, the second author on this paper, uh, Eduardo D'Souza was also the senior author on, um, a paper by Abe that we're going to talk about in the next episode that is one of the ones that did not find uh, greater, like like consistently greater muscle growth with higher and higher training volumes. Um, so, you know, just, just based on the research, like the prior research output of folks on this author list, it does not appear that the Ennis paper came from, people who are like strongly biased in favor of, of high training volumes. Um, or who knows if they are, they've at least published research previously that, that would run counter to that aim. So, um, yeah, accusations of bias from the researchers, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily apply here. The other thing I wanted to note, um, is yeah, in, in discussing this study, and in discussing the Ridelli paper that um, that that you guys mentioned previously, that was that that influential paper in the Schoenfeld meta-analysis. Um, one of the things that strikes me about both of those, like about both of these studies, and and we'll talk about Ridelli more in the next episode, is just that they do both have particular strengths that you don't see in a lot of the research on this topic. Um, in the case of the Ridelli paper, it was, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it a six month training intervention? Correct. Yep. Yeah. And so one of the things people often say is, ah, man, like we, 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 we can't take too much away from these studies that are only six, eight, 10, 12 weeks. Like we really need longer term stuff. Um, Six-month training studies don't come around very often, and I do find it interesting that the one long-term study on this topic is the one that is disregarded most often. Um, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll talk about that more in the next episode. But uh, specific to the the Ennis paper that we're talking about here, um, it did a lot of things extremely right. That also you like I would love to see more often in research that you very, very rarely see in research. Um, like when, like you, you guys talked about this when describing the paper, but I, I did just want to circle back to it and, and call it out for emphasis. Um, but one of the, one of the common criticisms of, of, of research, like of longitudinal training studies is that 
they they might be and i think very likely are often influenced by just what people were doing prior to joining the study um like if you know if if you've uh like if if you've previously been training one way and and you come into a study and they have you training some radically different way maybe it's going to be too much and you're going to get really bad gains just because it's way way more or way way less than whatever you were doing before or you know maybe you were training like really dumb previously and now you get in a study that actually has you putting effort into it and applies progressive overload and theoretically you had three years of prior training experience but it was all dumb and bad and you get in a paper like you get into a study and now you just grow like a weed because you're training well for the first time ever like in in both of those cases you know it's it's hard to say how much of the observed results are because of the actual study protocol versus the difference between the study protocol and what you were doing before you know um so that's that's a common criticism people have my, myself included um and what they did in this in this study of having the two week baseline two week volume reduction period two week familiarization and then 12 weeks of actual differing training intervention. Like that's incredible. Like that is what you would want to see to make sure that all of the people coming into the study, that at least their recent training history has been the same. And, um, you know, so, so that you can be more confident that different responses seen to the training protocol are truly due to differences in the training protocol and not merely due to the fact that one week ago people were doing some radically different form of training. Um, so yeah, like that, that is just like a methodological thing that you very, very rarely see that I would love to see more frequently. And this is one of the very few papers that has actually like done that, that appropriate like baselining and familiarization. Um, and so, yeah, like it, it is a methodologically very strong study and I've not seen that talked about. Like it's the, again, like the, the folks who do have like a bias against high volume and favor lower volumes, a lot of the studies they fall back on to say, well, we need to disregard this paper by Ennis because some other studies have found like plateaus at lower training volumes. Those were methodologically weaker studies. Um, like if, if again, I don't think you should take too much from any given paper, but if you're going to say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to take this paper is true. And this one is false. Again, don't do that. That's stupid. But like, if you were going to do that, the, the paper with the better methodology is the one that you should pay more attention to. And like, this, I would say, is the methodologically strongest paper in this area so far, like pretty, pretty clearly yeah. and comprehensively. For sure. And just to wrap things up, the one one thing that a lot of people didn't pay any attention to, obviously, it's not one of the main findings here, is the dropout, the dropouts from each group in this study. So an argument sometimes presented against very high volumes is the potential for injury. But if we look at the dropouts in this study, uh, actually the highest volume group had one dropout. The group that was in the middle had two dropouts because of uh, loss of interest. And then in the lowest volume group, which was you know still relatively high volume, you had three dropouts. So 
if we're going to go out on a limp like this is relatively weak evidence for, you know, higher, super high volumes, not necessarily being deleterious for one's uh, health and causing injury, you know, and they did specifically, you know, they did leg training, they did squats, they did leg presses, they did uh, leg extension. So yeah, that's something that also went completely unnoticed. Yeah. And I agree with that. The one thing I'll say is like with such a small sample size, I think it's uh, going to be difficult to detect any differences in injury risk and what have you. The one thing I did want to mention about the study, though, to add on to what Greg was saying, is they didn't just try to control for previous training volume. They also at least measured nutritional differences. So essentially looking at at least for a couple records pre and post study and obviously measuring body weight as well. Just made sure that gains or changes in body weight were similar between groups such that you couldn't just explain away the results by, oh, the highest volume group also gained a bunch of body weight during the study, which facilitated muscle growth, whereas the lowest volume group actually lost weight, you know? And that's very helpful to know when assessing, all right, was there a difference in protein intake or was there a huge difference in energy intake? It is useful to know that alongside the fact that they were also controlling for previous volume. It just makes for a really solid... Uh, study that is actually assessing the impact of volume as a variable on hypertrophy. And that's something that many other studies can actually claim to have done. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, you know, I, 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 do, I, do, I do think there are interesting conversations to be had about, um, yeah, should, do, would these findings apply to full body training or just one muscle group? Um, there's plenty of interesting conversations to be had about practicality. Um, you know, if, if you can still get like most of your gains with much lower training volumes, does, does it behoove you given your goals and values to push higher? Um, uh, like, yeah, but just in terms of, of this paper itself and, you know, individual studies, it very well could be that, that, uh, the, the results are just wrong just due to, sampling bias and just just random groups like random quirks of group allocation like it, it is theoretically possible that when they randomize these subjects into groups the folks who were just more responsive to training writ large a disproportionate amount of them somehow got randomized into the highest volume group like like it, anything can happen in a single study so if someone doesn't want to uh like just take the results at face value like i don't i don't begrudge that but yeah, like I, I, with what I said and and what you just brought up as well, Milo. Like it is, it it is it is true that this is, it 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 was a methodologically strong study, and that that shouldn't be overlooked. Um, and if someone wants to, I don't know, like the 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 thing the thing that gets my goat, um, that just really gets under my skin is when people apply very different standards of research criticism for studies they like and studies they don't, or when it is just like so blatant that it's just like, ah, we're going to disregard the study just because we don't like the results. Um, where as, as I look at it, if, if you were going to disregard this paper, you, you really should just disregard every other paper in this area. Um, if you're doing it for, like if you're doing it for any reasonable objective grounds, like as as far as I can tell it, like 
it is mostly just people wanting to disregard it because it disagrees with their biases rather than any just clear logical objective reason because like just to say it again it was a good study you know um it it did it did so many things right that you do very rarely see in in research in this field for sure for sure and it's another piece of the puzzle absolutely okay um if you guys don't have anything else i think we should wrap it up there cool all right uh thanks for listening to another episode of the stronger by science podcast this was uh now part one in what we expect to be a two-part series on really high volume training who knows might be a three-parter but right now we're thinking two um this episode discussed the the background and historical context for the debates and discussion and disagreements around high volume versus high intensity training the meta-analytic findings up to this point uh, regarding training volume and the most recent and highest volume study uh, that has been done that has recently uh, made some waves and generated a lot of chatter and controversy in the fitness industry. Um, in the next episode in this, again, what I assume and very much hope to be a two-part series, we'll go through uh, all of the other studies um, that have looked at really high training volumes, some of which did also find uh, increasing muscle growth past 30, 40 sets per week, some of which found uh, what appeared to be um, a plateau or slightly less growth with higher training volume. So we're, we're, we're going to dig into those studies, um, maybe discuss a bit about why they may have had differing findings and talk more about practical application should you try to increase your training volume should you try high volume training uh if you want to try it how should that look how sh how should you set it up uh and we'll answer some of your questions about training volume that will all be in part two of this again what i very much hope to be a two-part series um thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time 